This podcast was produced on stolen Yagra and Turrbal land that was never ceded. In this episode, we hear from Ross and Annette from IPAN. IPAN is the independent and peaceful Australia network. Ross and Annette discuss why peace was and always will be union business. I've, um, I'm a retired unionist. <laughs> I spent um, maybe 10 years working in factories and on the railways and so on. Then I got into um, research. And over that whole period, I think unions have been really important to me. And I, you know, looking back, you know, I really got that from my dad. I grew up in the 1950s in Brisbane, and my dad had been in the Air Force and been up in New Guinea and the Philippines and so on. And he came back with a very strong feeling about peace because he'd been in the war. In fact, he, he used to be, he he never wanted to go in the in the Anzac Day marches because he used to say. We need to stop looking at that past. We need to start making sure we never have wars again. But at the same time, he also became very interested in politics, in Labor politics. And I think that came about because people used to spend a lot of time sitting around talking about that sort of thing. And so he used to take me to the Labor Day marches when I was very little. And I'd sit on his back and look at the march. And of course, in those days, the Labor Day marches were pretty huge. Every union would have a couple of um, floats and they'd have like um, street theatre and um, huge crowds, tens of thousands. And so ever since then, I think I've had that commitment to sort of labour principles, really. Yeah, pretty pretty similar backgrounds, really, haven't we? Although we didn't, uh, Ross and I got to know each other through the early 80s with the uh, threat of nuclear war and and um, the organisation that was big at the time, People for Nuclear Disarmament. But really, I mean, my dad played a big role in me, in my um, understanding of war. And uh, he lost his brother towards the end of the war. And I think that was a big sort of grief in the family that, you know, you talk about, hear about intergenerational trauma. And I, I think that's, uh, you know, definitely passed through to me and, um, you know, as a nurse, uh, I started my nursing training at 17, uh, the day after my birthday, I think it was. <laughs> and, you know, I came from a, a, a labour family uh, and I joined the union, which there was no Queensland Nurses Union at that stage, it was the Australian Nursing Federation. But that was, in fact, I do remember that induction day uh, the table being set up and every nurse that um, started work that day was more or less expected to join the union. What a, what a wonderful time that was. Peace is just such an integral part of building a better future for your family, for your kids and grandkids. Um, you know, we just cannot build that better future that unions strive so hard to do and we all strive so hard to do if uh, in, in the event that there would be another war. Uh, you know, we, we think back to the horrors of the Second World War where I think it was like something like 50, 50 million people died. I mean, most young people today have no concept of 50 million people dying. And yet, in a future war, if we do go to war with China, which is so talked about, Frequently on every news bulletin, there's some, some relationship to that threat of war with China. We're not looking at 50 million people dying, we're looking at mutually assured destruction around the planet. Yeah, 
so you know unions have got such a uh, uh, well I think the thing about the union movement and we hear a lot about union membership you know being a fraction of what it used to be but union membership and representation of working people in this country is still the most significant no other organization represents working people like unions do so there's still fantastic capacity for union working people to uh, to assert their rights to a peaceful and just future uh, through that for me i was thinking about this sort of question and for me peace is really about a good life when you think of it. it's a pretty trite phrase but it really means that we we respect each other and we feel secure and we we know that our kids are going to be have the same sort of world and um, I think that's the underlying sort of impetus of the peace movement is to try and build a world where we actually um, a, a just world but one where we actually respect each other and, and when you think about it that's just really the essence of the union movement you know I mean, unions really are workers having to organize together and when we organize together we just achieve so much in terms of making life better for ourselves and for our kids and you know in Annette's and my case being retired it's our grandkids you know, you can see young young people today growing up and you think you do not want them facing the horror of a war. And, but, you know, I mean, we look back to our, when we were in the 60s and, of course, the anti-Vietnam movement, and there was so much opposition to that because every family saw it as actually impacting on them and they saw that it actually was a war that wasn't really in anyone's interest. So I, I think... That's, that's tied, those two, the union movement and the peace movement are really so closely tied together. Before AUKUS is really a new, and the, the next development on what happened in 2011 when the Pacific pivot was announced by President Obama and he came to Australia and he addressed the Australian Parliament about how the United States was going to have its focus on the Western Pacific uh, and ultimately it was an ambition to counter China. So um, as a result of that visit, a document was put together called the Force, Pop, uh, Force Posture Agreement, which we in IPAN have only just recently, one of our members has uh, really unpacked, looked at it in detail. He's had articles published in The Guardian and many other um, uh, media outlets uh, because this does seem to be something that nobody's really realised just how significantly we have let go of our sovereignty. Um, sovereignty is something Paul Keating has warned about and most recently Malcolm Turnbull. Lo and behold, Malcolm Turnbull speaking out against AUKUS <laughs> and um, again using the um, justification that we are losing any semblance of independence and control over our own affairs. Uh, through this process that's been in place since 2011. So AUKUS, um, do you want to talk about AUKUS, Ross? Well, it stands for Australia, United Kingdom and United States, so it sounds uh, okay on the surface, but as in its saying, I suppose, it's actually deepening this the sort of enmeshment that we have with the United States military. And, you know, when you look at our history, we've... We've had this history of having relied on the United Kingdom for many years, a 
and now in the United States, and I think AUKUS is really taking us a further step down that process where we actually are not determining a defence that's in our interests. And um, when you look at the sorts of things that you're, you're referring to, Andrew, about these large uh, nuclear-powered submarines, the whole point of those submarines is so they can sit in the deep waters of the South China Sea and attack China. They're not actually designed to use around the Australian continent, so in fact they're no use to defend Australia. So the, the whole of the AUKUS arrangements, and of course now the, the United States government is trying to involve Japan in those arrangements as well. There's now talk of trying to involve India in those arrangements. And um, I think what we see is this is leading to the United States, which is really acting as a bit of a bully around that sort of, in that Pacific region. It's, they're trying to goad the Chinese. And so I think what what's happening is that those countries are all being set up to actually be the front line of a war with China rather than the United States. And I think that's, that's the sort of essence of what AUKUS is about, is setting us up to actually build our military and put these millions and millions of dollars into, de into a, a defence force which is not designed to defend Australia so much as to attack China. And I think that's... That's what we really need to um, try and, and get some discussion in the community because, of course, there has been almost no discussion in the community about this. So this is, yeah. this is one of the things that we in IPAN are trying to do is to build a dialogue in, amongst ordinary people about what is our defence force for. Are we really building a defence force to defend Australia? We've got a, a massive cost here for a war machine that, that from what we're hearing, is not even going to protect us. What would be a better use of that money when we think of forward estimates of the cost that that's going to be to the Australian public? It's got to, become, it's got to come from somewhere. When we talk about priorities within our budgets, um, you know, what could we do with that money that would be better spent? Well, well $1 billion will buy you a complete hospital. When you think of it, there, you know, there's $170 billion is going to be spent on submarines. There's other, other equipment that really is not designed to, to defend Australia either. So we're talking about like hundreds of billions of dollars. Mm. And how could that be used in terms of offsetting climate change, trying to build some real alternative energy solutions for Australia? How could it be used to, to sort of improve our health system and you know there's a lot of talk at present about Medicare and how much money is needed to actually make it a, a health system that people can afford. And housing, um, public housing, yeah. um, to wish you know we have got a shameful record of homelessness <coughs> in this country growing by the week isn't it? Mm -hmm. There's no shame there is there from <laughs> And the percentage of our GDP uh, that's going to the military um, as a whole is just going up each year. You know, it used to be they were aiming for two percent. But uh, at the at the weekend conference I was at, there was a graph showing how it's uh, 
it's likely to go up to 4% um, in the next 10 years. Mm. So one of the other things that, that is obviously of concern in relation to, we, we know that we're going to have to have some form of defence, right? But the contracts that are going out at the moment in the defence procurement area, from at the IPAN conference that we had in October, November last year, I was gobsmacked that the majority of those companies that are, are getting, if you like, the benefits, the profits out of a war machine are predominantly foreign-owned. So there's, there's not even a benefit to procuring and developing, um, for one better word, an arms industry that could protect us uh, in Australia. So, I mean, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Mm. Well, I mean, certainly that, that's true. When you look at those big companies like General Dynamics and Boeing, all those military industrial complex companies are all owned by either the United States or European countries. So there will not be jobs for Australian workers. And, and this is one of the deceitful things, I think, because it's portrayed that big expenditure in defence as something that's actually going to create a lot of jobs for workers. And we know that the Australian manufacturing industry has been decimated over the last 20 or 30 years. So there are, there's this real need for Australian workers to actually get jobs that are meaningful and sustainable and useful to the community. And when you think about it, there's a hell of a lot of jobs like that, you know, building public transport infrastructure, building all the, you know, as, as you guys would know, there's a, there's a real need for improving the whole electricity infrastructure in Australia. But instead of that, the jobs will be created in these foreign uh, uh, overseas companies. So if we're looking at a defence industry, we need to build one that's actually designed to defend Australia with the sorts of weapon systems that are defensive rather than offensive weapon systems and build it in Australia. And I think that's quite possible. That's another of the things I think we need to sort of develop a dialogue amongst ordinary people because, you know, ordinary workers, they got, they've got the answer to how we should be actually building those sorts of things. It shouldn't be up to those big foreign multinationals. And the, um, the revolving doors that goes on in between our elected leaders and those corporations is quite disgusting and shameful. We all know about the military industrial complex and it's alive and well in Australia as well as we see you know, the, the revolving door of politicians into arms manufacturing mm. corporations. Yes, there was a meeting last year of... Um Brendan Melson, who's now a senior person in Boeing. <laughs> so he's, you know, having come from being a defence minister, he's jumped straight into one of these major military industrial corporations. Okay, so from that perspective, thank you for sharing that, because I think that's really important, because it is sold often as this is going to be jobs. I mean, there might be some in the manufacturing of a, of a building, but there's very little afterwards, and the profits go overseas. So, you know, we've seen it in privatisation, and it's, it's owned by overseas companies that are well known uh, for that. So um, what do we do about it? How do we, um, you know, what can we do? What are some of the things we can do? And, and I was, I was um, uh, able to attend the IPAN conference last year as a representative from the ETU, and I know that we put forward probably about five or six submissions to the, um, 
the People's Inquiry, which I'd like you to, to talk a little bit about now. Um, we submitted some input into the Charting Our Own Course, the People's Inquiry, which challenged, among other things, the political orthodoxy that it is inevitable that Australia must prepare for war, uh, and most likely with China. And therefore, we must shore up our military relationships with the US. That's the orthodoxy, that's what we just talked about. Um, can you summarise some of the key findings from the inquiry and also touch on some of the viable alternatives to things like AUKUS and the ever-increasing dependence on US uh, for security? People from places in the Blue Mountains, as well as academics and union leaders, uh, it was a very diverse group of people that uh, sent in submissions. And I see it as such an, a valuable snapshot of what ordinary people in Australia um, are reflecting on our past history of involvement in US-led wars and, and where they want us to go, where they want those limitations to be. And yeah, Ross might be able to um, just identify those areas. Yeah, just to add to what Annette's saying too, is that, you know, there were 250-odd submissions, but that reflects discussions amongst like thousands of people. You know, just for example, with the ETU, we've talked at a number of times at your state conference where you had like 200 delegates there. And it's out of that that your ETU submission to that inquiry, because uh, you put one in, of course, and that submission was informed by those sort of discussions. And that's so those submissions are actually reflecting a, a pretty broad um, feeling across the community, I think. There, there were six sort of main things that came out. The first was in terms of First Nations people. And I think there's a, there's a sense amongst those submissions that we really need to meaningfully consult with them, that often their country and their land is being used for military exercises without really any input from them, you know, and we see a big military exercise coming up in in Rockhampton later this year. Mm, Talisman um, Yeah, with 30-odd thousand troops testing all their we latest weapons on Aboriginal land, of course, without any real input from Aboriginal people. So that was the first thing that came out. The second were two issues that are currently underway by campaigns. The first one to try and get Australian government to sign on the treaty to banning nuclear weapons. So that's already been signed by, I think, about 60 or 70 countries ratified. Um, the Australian, the Labor Party here has said that they're going to ratify it. So there's a campaign to try and encourage them to do that. And um, so IPEN, that, that came out of this inquiry, certainly. The second thing in terms of what you said before about the, the sort of transparency is that the war can be declared now by basically the Prime Minister. There is no discussion in Parliament. And there hasn't been. You know, when we went to war in Iraq, we know, as you said, Andrew, there were hundreds, in fact, hundreds of thousands, probably up close to a million people on the streets protesting that. If you had asked the Australian people then, there would have been overwhelming opposition to that war, and yet we went into the war because Prime Minister Howard decided himself, with maybe his close advisers, that they would, they would do that. And so that's the other big campaign, is what they're calling a war powers campaign. Yeah, so that's another campaign that's an ongoing campaign that we certainly will 
um, it, you know, it, it came out of those submissions. People saw that as a really important thing. Then there were three other issues that I think people brought up. The first one, as we mentioned, is about defence for Australia, that we actually move towards a self-defence force. And um, the second is about trying to move away from military approaches to conflict to diplomatic approaches. And of course, there's always conflicts between countries. You can't expect that to disappear any more than you have conflicts between neighbours or whatever. But the, the issue is how do you resolve those conflicts in a peaceful way? And so a lot of the submissions said we need to actually be taking a much more proactive role, particularly in the Southeast Asia, that Australia can have a, have a really important role as, as, a, as a peacemaking role. And, and in fact, people are now talking about setting up a peace treaty amongst all the Southeast Asian countries. And the Pacific countries. So that's that. That's an important thing that I think came out of that inquiry. The last is, uh, and we talked about this too, is the costs, and particularly climate change. A lot of the submissions were saying, why can't we put some of that huge amount of expenditure that's been put into those uh, military toys, really, put it into climate change and, and actually do something serious about that. Unionists and unions have a proud history of standing up against the war machine and the warmongers at various times. Can you finish by talking about some of the historic union-led peace initiatives and how they disrupted the war machine? And finally, how can interested ETU members get more informed and involved in, in this important campaign for peace? So I know there's, there's some history in, in what you were talking about, your dad, people coming back from war I know from an ETU perspective, our members who, who went over to Hiroshima and, and uh, Japan after the war came back with a definite view that they didn't want nuclear power or the nuclear industry because of what they saw in the devastation over there. So, but there has been well-known well um, historical union peace initiatives. Yeah. Can you? None more so than the maritime unions of the world, really which go back to the 1920s really with their campaigns against war. And uh, certainly if you visit the MUA's premises, you know, the, the, the historic banners on the wall about their long-standing uh, opposition to war and, um, you know, building the peace movement amongst their members. So that's one example, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I was thinking of... Uh Particularly relevant, I think, is, is what you mentioned about the, the nuclear power issue because, you know, during the 1970s and 1980s, that became a, a, a really big mass movement. And it, in a sense, it was led by unions. You know, there are other people involved. I was involved yes. from my perspective. But, but it really was the union initiatives that actually, you know, without that campaign, we would now have nuclear power stations here, we would have nuclear processing plants, which were all stopped because of those initiatives, and we would probably have nuclear weapons. We would be part of that nuclear club. So I see that campaign, and, and it's been central to your, to the ETU's policies, I know, for ever since that time, I see that as a really successful campaign in, in actually sort of holding back the war machine to some extent. Yeah.
I mean, I mean, there there were there have been lots of historical examples. I mean, during the First World War, it was unions really that stopped conscription. You know, there were two referendums about conscription that Billy Hughes was trying to get conscript because because it was such a disastrous war. They were losing soldiers so rapidly that the government here tried to conscript people, and in two referendums, people rejected that, and it, it was. Unions who were part of that struggle. That was certainly another. Obviously, people involved. I was thinking about that too. That's right. Yeah. 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 I mean, that when the Japanese invaded China, there was a worldwide response to that, because of course it was a, a very brutal war that really is ignored. People talk about the First World War having started in 1939, but of course in 1937, when the Chinese were fighting for their own survival, really, you had waterside workers around the world saying, well, we're not going to send pig iron over to Japan. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, no union is more... Um, uh, no group of workers is more impacted than any others, I suppose, but nurses, and that's what the message that I have made to... Uh, the Australian Nursing and Midwives Federation is, you know, if when war happens, uh, it's it's nurses and health practitioners that'll be there trying to deal with the uh, horrific human costs of uh, of the conflict. And um, I'm very proud to say that uh, the Queensland Nurses and Midwives Union has joined IPAN, understanding the importance of working for peace before a war starts. And uh, so too has the National Nurses um, Organisation, the Australian Nursing and Midwives Federation, uh, uh, joined IPAN. So th these are really good initiatives. And when you're talking about what um, workers can do to, um, to work for peace and to really uh, change course of our government's trajectory towards war, uh, I think people need to be aware, for starters. They need to talk about uh, the real situation with their family, friends and colleagues, their workmates. Uh, they can access the uh, IPAN inquiry report from our website and from the ETU's website, I'm probably hazard to say it, uh, it may be available uh, directly from the ETU. Um, because this gives people information uh, there's findings uh, that are identified and there's recommendations coming from the eight areas that we covered in that inquiry. So that's the first step, I think. But then to get engaged, I mean, one of the things that we're, practical things that we're looking at um, people in Brisbane um, getting in, involved in is the campaign to prevent a nuclear submarine base being built, possibly, in or around Brisbane. Uh, the $10 billion that's been allocated for such a facility will be decided in the next month or so, or announced, and it will either be in Brisbane, Port Kembla, or um, Newcastle. 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 That's right. Is it, now, is it true that uh, those two Port Kembla and Newcastle, councils around there, Wollongong in Port Kembla and Newcastle, have both um, passed motions that they oppose any 
nuclear uh, refueling or any station in uh, in their cities. Is that correct? Yeah. And but Brisbane hasn't. No, so there's work to be done. We'd love to get Brisbane. And Brisbane City Council has agreed to... There are cities which sign up to the um, nuclear ban treaty. The Brisbane City Council has signed on to that. So there's sort of precedent for them actually taking up this as another nuclear issue, really. And I mean, Brisbane has a long history of that sort of anti-nuclear campaigning. Just to take up what Annette was saying about people talking to each other, because I think... We see that as the most fundamental thing. And, you know, in terms of your members, talking to your mates and trying getting groups to talk together is probably the most important thing, Andrew. I mean, we'd, we're happy to come and talk to some meetings or to <coughs> groups. You might even... It'd be great if you, if you guys, some of you, were interested in setting up a little peace group in the ETU and we can certainly help with that in terms of coming and talking or producing resources because ultimately it's going to depend on ordinary people taking this issue up. I guess the other thing is in terms of the inquiry report um, we want this to be received and talked about in every member of parliament of the Australian government or the Australian parliament. So we are looking for people to put their hand up, say yes, I'll take that to my local MP and uh, I'll have a read through it first, we'll have the talking points for, to help people um, you know, conduct that conversation. But um, you know, we, we'd be very interested to hear from anyone uh, who's like to um, let us know that they're prepared to do that. Society where none of the mass media talk about that, but what gives you the strength to do that is the collective around you and that's exactly what unions are. That's what, that's what gives us all that strength is having our mates and our workmates together with us. And so I think the unions are, are the key to actually changing this whole thing around. This podcast is produced by the Electoral Trades Union, Queensland and Northern Territory Branch. 